This is the Canadian Society of Cinematographers podcast. Join us as Canada's cinematographers discuss the tools and techniques they use in shaping the aesthetics of their current projects. This podcast features Director of Photography, Jeremy Benning, CSC, in conversation with Canadian Cinematographer Editor, Fanon Chahaman, and Carolyn Wong of the CSC Executive, about his work on Season 1 of the TV series, The Expanse, premiering December 14th, 2015, on Sci-Fi and Space Channels. This interview was recorded on April 15th, 2015. Jeremy, what can you tell us about the storyline of The Expanse? Well, The Expanse is based on a series of books Mm -hmm. that are New York Times bestsellers. There's four books in the series right now. So our first season was based on the first first book, sort of like two-thirds of the first book. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a story about, it's like 250 years in the future. It's kind of like where mankind is at that point. We're, We're kind of within the solar system. So take all the politics that we have now and sort of just advance it to that point. So... They took immigrants who wanted to work in, you know, these asteroid colonies to mine minerals and ice, water, that kind of, because water is valuable. Basically, that's kind of the, the, the world was set up, say, about 150 years before our story started. So the places that we visit are actually quite old. They're like 150-year-old colonies that have thousands, millions of people living there. But they're all basically people who've, who've spent generations living in like one-sixth gravity, so they've, they've grown differently, they're taller, their bone structure's different. They couldn't probably live on Earth if they came back, but they've never seen Earth. They've lived there for mm-hmm. generations. So you've basically got the solar system divided into the people that live on these, these asteroid colonies that are kind of near Jupiter and Mars. You've got Mars has its own colony, and you've got the Moon, and you've got Earth. So our story kind of focuses on this one particular asteroid colony called Ceres, and then there's also... There's sort of a Martian Mars aspect. We never actually go to Mars, though, but there's a Mars aspect to it, and then Earth. So the kind of main conflict is between Earth and and uh, the asteroid colony series. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, there's a there's a um, a detective on series who works for the uh, Star Helix police force, which is sort of like their private uh, security police force kind of thing. And he's been tasked with finding this this missing girl, and she's the she's the daughter of the wealthiest magnate in the solar system. She's gone missing, so he's been basically tasked to find to find her. And sort of in conjunction with that, the other storyline is there's a there's a space uh, spaceship which is basically an ice freighter called the Canterbury, and there's this crew working on that that are their job is to harvest ice because water is really valuable at that point. And there's a conflict with them; their ship gets blown up, and then they're kind of like on their own mission. And there's the detective on series, and eventually the two storylines kind of kind of merge. But there's and then of course there's a whole political side with Earth that's mixed in with that. So there's like three storylines kind of thing that are all happening at the same time. That's very interesting. Um, so when you learned, so this is reportedly the biggest show that's been shot in Toronto. When you learned how big it would be as a cinematography, what were you most excited about tackling? I guess knowing how many sets we'd have to create or create looks for and that there was a lot of different worlds because the worlds are all very different. There's the Earth look, there's the spaceships look, there's the asteroid colony look. They're all different. They all are different ages because even though we're in the future, some are newer, some are 300 years old or 200 years old, depending on when they were built. So it's futuristic, but it's also kind of some of its old future, some of its new future. To me, that was the exciting part is how do we, how do we create all these different looks? And also from an audience standpoint, how are you going to differentiate watching it where you are? So the, the challenge is, you know, right away when you cut to this scene, 
that you know, okay, we're in that ship or we're in this place, you know. So I think for me that was sort of at the outset knowing what we were going to have to do, that knowing we were going to have that, that sort of creative challenge, that was sort of the most interesting part to start with for sure. Okay, so what was your process in pre-production? I understand you had a couple of months to prepare. Yeah, we had eight weeks, which is really unusual. I'd never had that much time to do anything before. But it was, it was really necessary because of how many sets. We had three stages at Pinewood, total of about 70,000 square feet, which are basically all going to be filled with sets. So it was just a, a, a huge process of turning out all these set designs. And because a lot of it had to be lit from within, they're practically lit. We had to, we had to know how we're going to light them while we're building the sets because they had to accommodate where lights were going to go as we were as we're designing the set. So I would meet with Seth. Seth Reed was the production designer. So he and I, for those first few weeks, I would meet with him in his office every day, and he would go through the drawings that he had, and we'd talk about scenes. We'd go through the scripts because we were kind of really focusing on the first two or three episodes in those first eight weeks. But a, a lot of what we were building there would set the kind of backbone for a lot of the sets throughout. But there were there'd be many more sets to come that we wouldn't know about until we started shooting but at least to get started mm-hmm. we worked we worried about those first two episodes or three episodes and so we would spend a lot of time together going through the idea you know what each scene required what it's going to look like and of course all this concept art they had concept artists working on on staff with us so we could yeah. we would meet with them and and seth and i and the the um pete nick was our set decorator mm-hmm. we would all talk together about our approach to each set and then from there, okay, where do the lights want to go? So I would sort of kind of brainstorm with those guys where the lights want to go. And then we knew that LED was going to be the way to go because a lot of these sets, we'd have to tuck lights into little places and mm-hmm. it can't be hot. We need to have it change color. It has to be dimmable. It has to be remote control. So we started testing LEDs like crazy and we, we ended up using a lot of ribbon from a company called Lightyear in LA. And you, you saw it when you came to visit a lot of that yeah. stuff. And we... So we basically tested it all of it on camera. We knew what worked well and what didn't. There was a request to be able to shoot high frame rate. And the off-the-shelf dimmers that were available from Lightyear only do like 60 frames a second. And Terry, the first director, wanted to do like 120. And so we had to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? And Mike, my gaffer, was familiar with a company locally that, that had made custom dimmers that would work with these LEDs. So that was a whole part of testing and of making sure they wouldn't flicker on camera. And then incorporating all that ribbon into the set. So once we sort of knew how many areas we need to put it, we had to start calculating how many feet we needed this stuff. So we ended up, I don't know how many hundreds of feet we needed, but we needed, you know, a lot, a lot of it. <laughs> and I think it ended up being a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of it that we had to buy because it's consumable. You can't rent it. You have to, because you're cutting it up, you're soldering it. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you have to buy it. And the producers, everyone kind of understood that this is the way to do this because we wanted to be able to look anywhere. You need to be able to look up at a ceiling. 360 and not not see lights in the ceiling you know so we have to be able to light it every which way so that really the way to do it was with this ribbon so everyone knew that this was the best way so that whole eight weeks of prep was spent figuring out how much of the stuff we need mm-hmm. where it's going to go in the sets it was you know most of it was really worrying about set design really mm-hmm. those first eight weeks and did you get to decide your cam- what camera and lens package you would use, or was that selected by producers? Sometimes it is. No, it was it was open. I mean, they, they were. I think people were sort of going like, "Well, we'd love to use the Alexa," but the more we looked at the the sets and what we wanted to do in there, we knew that we everything was a lot of space would be confined, and the Alexa's big. Plus Terry McDonough, who was directing the first couple episodes, he was really pushing to use the Movi. He wanted to use the Movi heavily and when I first met with him we talked about it and he hadn't actually used it before so he wasn't familiar with it but 
I said, okay, we're going to test it heavily. We did. We spent a couple weeks just testing. Well, we tested like four different gimbal systems. And um, we knew that really the only option to do that was the Epic because you can't put an Alexa on a Movi. And we really didn't want to get into the, you know, having two different camera systems, one for the Movi, one for, mm-hmm. you know, so, and the Dragon is the newer camera. I, I've been pretty happy with it. I've used it before. And we thought, you know, this is, from an ergonomic standpoint, knowing how much the Movi wants to be used and how our set size constraints will be, the Dragon is the best option for us. So that was what we ended up choosing. And then lens-wise kind of went from there. We wanted to use the Cooks for everything to kind of take the edge off of the sci-fi-ness of it so it's not so super clinical because it wanted to have some grit to it. It didn't want to feel super clean and, mm-hmm. you know, spacey. We wanted to kind of make a little more like, it's kind of like a working class science fiction show. So it's like, these are miners and oil freighter workers kind of thing. So it wants to be a bit grittier. So the cooks were the first choice, but the S5s are too heavy for the Mobi. So the option was the Leica Sumalux. So we used the Leicas on the Mobi because that's the size and the weight we could fit on the Mobi. We basically maxed the thing out to exactly what it could hold. And then the Cook S5s we used for everything else. So it was actually a pretty good intercut. I thought I was kind of worried how those would blend, but they actually they actually worked quite well together in terms of how we were using them. It worked quite well. And why was the director so committed to using the, the movie? He wanted to, he felt that from what he'd seen of all the, the demonstration videos online, that there was something about it that would that would bring a new look to the show because it really hadn't been used in a, in a television show like this before. So he thought, you know, it, this is like a, a signature that we can bring to the show because no one's done it yet and knowing the range of motion you you have with being able to pass it off to people go through things lower it down on ropes and really explore the space that you're in if you're in a a spaceship and you want to be able to move from up there to down here and that's the only way to really do it is to be able to move it around with this with the system so he he pushed he pushed for that and I I was kind of worried at first because I'd used it before and I was like I don't know if it's going to work but I I love the idea like I was I love the concept of it but I was just concerned that it that it wouldn't work knowing how new it was and it never really been tested on a you know on a television show where it's got to work there's no time for delays and what if the electronics are buggy but it it really did work and I I was after the first like few weeks of shooting and we got to to the swing of how we were working with it it became our our for any kind of movement complicated shot it was the tool we used it more than Steadicam we had Steadicam with us the whole time but once we got used to what it could do I think we used Steadicam maybe like six times in the whole show I was just curious so the sets were um, a little bit confined. Some were, some, some were massive, some were tiny. Right. So you could shoot three hundred and sixty. Yes. You had all the LED lighting, so it made sense. I'm just trying to think that uh, was your shooting um, faster because mm. you had that ability to the I, mobile and mm. the three hundred and sixty. I think so. I think I think we were able to shoot faster because of the fact that we. The lighting was built in for the most part, so there wasn't a lot of relighting everything every time we turn around. And with the Movi, we could kind of go anywhere with it. You know, the, the, the mobility was, was great, and we could put it in places you couldn't get a steady cam normally. So it was it was definitely it was definitely a kind of a, a whole new way of thinking for me and for us, like our camera operators, because it was Jason and Angelo operating. You know, we I knew from the beginning with the Movi system that it doesn't really work well when you use it by yourself. It's designed to be used as a one-person thing, which is great if you're using it in a documentary or something very simple, but as soon as you're having to follow actors and do anything complicated where you gotta pan quickly and land on things and mm-hmm. go around corners and all that, it's it, the responsiveness of it in the majestic mode, they call it, it's, it's not quick enough. You have to anticipate movement before it happens a little bit. They do have an option where you can control it with a joystick, so one person can carry it, one person has the joystick, but the joystick thing that they made for it is basically a model airplane controller. 
So it's, it's, you're basically steering it with your thumb and it's not very precise. And that, so Walter Klassen here in Toronto, we knew that he was, he had just developed a set of wheels for Larry McConkie, the steady cam operator in the States, who was starting to experiment with the Movi. So uh, Walter had just made a set of wheels. So we went and tested it before he sent it to Larry and it worked, it was great. So we said, can you make us another set? So he made another set for us. So what we ended up doing was we had Angelo on the wheels, who's also a steady cam operator and Jay, Jason Vieira, who's also a steady cam operator, both very good operators in that sense. So Jay was the guy carrying the Movi and Angelo was on the wheels. So that coupled with, we had a sort of special um, carrying device to carry the Movi called the Slingshot, which Walter yeah. and Ray Duma had also worked out together. Mm -hmm. And I tested that with Ray and I knew that you can't really hold this thing in your arms without some kind of support for more than a few minutes. So combined with that, with the slingshot, the, the Movi, the remote wheels, and those two guys on it, you could basically put the camera anywhere really easily. And because Angelo's great on the wheels and Jay's great as a steady cam operator, he knew how to move his body with this thing. That It was kind of like having like a technocrane on, on legs or like a Russian arm on legs. You could go anywhere with it. You could have the lens like inches off the ground. You could lift it to, you know, 10 feet in the air kind of thing. So we, were, we did push it. We used it to do shots that would go from low to high and over things and through things and lowering it on ropes. And, mm -hmm. you know, and the sense of movement you get out of it is because it's very stable and it's kind of going anywhere, you sort of get the sense that the camera's floating anywhere it wants to go, you know. So uh, you couldn't really quite get that same look with Steadicam, I don't think. No. Um, you know, and, and, and like I said, both of those guys are Steadicam operators, so they know Steadicam really well, but they both knew... For most of the things we were doing, this was the this was the tool. So I think over the course of the whole show, those guys got really good at it, to the point where it was. I mean, every day I was always like, "Hey, what can we do with it today? What's what's the new thing we can do with it?" You know, whatever someone came up with, we could pretty much do it. So that was experimental as well. We were experimenting with it, like, "What can we do with it?" And and the, there were four directors, and of course, none of them had done this before. We were all doing this for the first time. So as we got through the through the season we got better at it and started to know it's what it was good at and what it wasn't good at. And every director who kind of got a chance to use it, they would start getting ideas. And by the end of it, they, were, they would be basically saying, you know what, I'm screwed now. Like when I leave the show, where am I gonna go and do this again? Because you guys are the only ones that have this thing. <laughs> spoiled you. They, we, spoiled kind of, we, we sort of spoiled them. So it was, and at the end of it, we're like, wow, we've, you know, now we've created this thing that hopefully we can continue doing. Because we sort of created that, that kit just for the show and mm -hmm. I'm assuming that from after this that other people will start doing right, right. this because I'm sure it'll, it'll catch on in that sense so I think we'll start seeing more of this kind of way of operating it's and what will that mean for TV shows like this well it's I don't know I mean the, in the beginning the challenge was like okay well you, now you have you need two people to operate it really properly yeah. so we had these discussions like well how does that work from a if you have you know A and B camera operators now you can really only have one camera working because these two guys are now operating one camera but because of how involved in the shot it is, you, you probably really couldn't have a second camera anyways because the movie's all over the place. You couldn't really get another shot. So mm -hmm. we knew that when the movie was playing, for the most part, it was getting... That's the whole shot. It's like a one or You don't have another... There's no other angle. Mm -hmm. There were a few times when we'd have a second angle that we could get where Jay could operate it on, on his own. It was a simple shot, and Angelo could be doing another shot at the same time, but that was very rare. Most of the time, it was... When the movie was playing, it was... Was one shot, and the producers, everyone kind of understood that, so there was no question like, well, why aren't we using both cameras? Like, you know, mm -hmm. people knew that when the movie's working, it's getting really great stuff, and you don't need another, another mm -hmm. angle. Right, so mostly a one camera shoot. When the movie's working, it's one Just camera. So do you, what percentage of the movie do you think was in the show? I would say 
40-50% of the show was, was, was Moby. More than I expected, you know, considering how new it was. It was really going to come down to how reliable it was. If it was going to be funky or cause us problems, we had a spare, actually, and we never used it. We never needed to use the spare. Oh, really? So, which is, okay. I mean, for new technology, that's kind of unheard of. You don't usually have that kind of luck with something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, hats off to those guys because Movi, they, the thing worked and, and we had it maxed out. Like the M15 is 15 pounds and we weighed that we had a carbon fiber Red Dragon on there with the, the, sm- the smallest little Hedane focus motors, two of them, and the small Preston MDR and the little bolt. Everything was like just 15 pounds and it worked. It totally awesome. worked. Who we, so who was your team again? It's um, your camera crew. So we had Angelo Colavecchia was the A camera. Jason Vieira was B camera. Boris Roy was the A camera focus puller. Craig Morgan was the B camera focus puller. And Morning Glory was my DIT. And then, you know, we had occasionally we'd bring in a C camera. So we had a few different guys come in and do C camera that, you know, that were with us throughout the show. Who was your gaffer? Uh, Michael Galbraith. And your key grip? Rico Emerson. And what did you rate the camera at, the ISO? We pretty much called it 800 all the time. Um, we tested it at higher, and I, it was kind of too noisy. I thought I could go further with it, and I, because everyone was saying, oh, you can shoot 2,000 ISO. And I did tests with it, and I thought it's a little bit too noisy. So we just kept it at 800, and we worked with, some of our sets, we were, we were what, we were in 1.4 at 800, like very little light. Oh, really? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and speaking of which, so how did you, so the, the lighting-wise, you said you had uh, LEDs built into the sets. Can you talk about other lighting technology that was proprietary to the show, like you, you mentioned? Sure. Well, we, um... We did actually, we made a few fixtures where we, um, because I had, I had a bunch of my own chimeras, like little strip chimeras, lanterns, that kind of thing. And because we had all this LED stuff, Mike and I were talking. I said, well, could we, why don't we make our own speed rings where we can build in, like basically put the LEDs into, the, into our, our chimeras because there weren't any speed rings for these things. So Mike and I started talking about how to use our LEDs to work with the chimeras. So because we had a fabrication shop already making a lot of metal stuff for us, they made us speed rings to put our... LEDs into our lights, into our existing chimeras. So basically with a little battery pack and these ribbons that were built into a, a speed ring for the chimeras, we just had lights on a stand. There was no plugging it into a wall. We just have like a, a little like, you know, ribbon, uh, like a pancake lantern or a little small strip that we could use as like a little small eye light or whatever that was, it was all battery powered. So we didn't have to plug anything in and it had its own little dimmer on it. You could dim it up and down. We also made our own sort of, we had a whole series of, we called them like the honeycomb light or sweet light. We had a few different names for them, but they were essentially like a little, um, almost like an exit sign, like a like a aluminum kind of box. It's like about a couple inches thick and you know a foot by ten inches kind of thing. We had them in various sizes. We made maybe about a dozen of them, and we put LED uh, RGBA ribbon and RGB ribbon inside them. And we found this company that makes uh, that you can buy plastic uh, honeycomb grid from. We ended up getting like boxes of this stuff. It comes in four by eight sheets, so we could cut it up and make make our own little honeycomb grids and build it all into this little compact metal box that we could paint in any color we want. So we could stick it into sets. So if we realize okay, we need a light here and there's no light there because sometimes the action ended up being in a spot where the lights just wasn't there for some reason. We could just stick it to the scene, drill a hole, mm-hmm. stick it in, and it's right in the shot. It looks like part of the ship, but it's fully controllable RGB lighting. So we could make the color we want. We can make the brightness we want. But on camera, it looks like part of the set. You don't yeah, think it's a yeah. film light, but it's actually lighting the shot. So we, we made a bunch of those things, and we used them quite a bit. We stuck them all over the place. So how involved were you in the building of these lights? You were actually part of that process? Mike and I would sit down, and we would sort of sketch it on a piece of paper and talk about what it needed to be. We, we knew oh. what we had as far as 
the ribbon, what shape it was, how big should we make these things. We made just the little sketches and we went through samples of this honeycomb stuff. We ordered a couple boxes of it. So we sort of made variations of like bigger honeycomb grid, smaller honeycomb grid. So I would basically say, you know, we, let's make a rectangular one, let's make square, let's make bigger square. We had about three different sizes and we, we could make those, we could basically pick and choose as we needed them. And they were making more, so we would we'd use a bunch, okay, we need more, let's make five more of this size. So who was making them? Mike had his own fabrication shop and I, they were down the street from us and they, they did all the, any kind of metal stuff we needed for our lighting, they made it for us. That was cool because we, we were kind of, we, I knew we'd need to put lights in places where we are going to see them and otherwise they'd be recognizable as, as film lights depending on what they were so that these could just kind of blend in. You really didn't know that they were, they just looked like part of the actual lighting of the, of the space. Right, and this is because, you know, you could see everything the way you were shooting so you yeah. had to hide all you the Yeah, you had to hide because oftentimes the ceilings are quite low too so, that, you know, yeah. the lights are often like only a foot or two above someone's head. Yeah, so, so in what other ways does having the lights built in enhance the, the actual show? You know, the... I think it makes it feel more real because okay. you end up, you can kind of, the, the lighting is very ambient you know, it's you, you sense that as people move through the space, they move through in and out of pools. You can see they're interacting directly with the lights that are around them, whether it's monitors on the walls or the lights that are built into the control surfaces. Like you can see that as they're moving through, that the light is actually really hitting them. So, you you know, you on camera, you see the source of the light, you see that hitting the actors. It sort of tells you that it's a real space. You're not, yeah. it doesn't look like there's lights that are somewhere magically above. What What was your widest land? What's just... Were you shooting a lot of wide? We did. We well, the widest lens we have is a twelve mil Master Prime, so we had it. We carried a twelve and a fourteen Master Prime, which we did use quite a bit because sometimes we were in these tiny little spaces and we needed to get back far enough. And not every wall was wild. Some were, but we also didn't want to get into the habit of pulling the walls out and always going back. So you feel like the cameras outside the space. We we wanted to feel like you're in there with them as opposed to like magically back from far looking in. So we we did occasionally pull walls out just because of to make it easier to work but if we could we tried to keep it that we, the camera stayed inside the space and if, if we had to go wider then we go wider and how would you describe the, the color palette of the show and how did you come up with it well the color palette varied from place to place so we would start with you know for example on series uh, the asteroid it's it's basically a rock that they've carved into and they put tunnels into to create these living spaces so in that in that place in some places you see the rock walls and the tunnels of the markets and that kind of thing. So the beginning was what is the actual color of the of the stone, of the rock, of the place they're in? What would they have made stuff out of? Where would their clothing have come from? There was a concept that everything was based on science that was sort of interpolated into the future. So the guys who wrote the books were very conscious of the science. So we had a lot to go on from their view of what the world would be. So we they kind of figured everything by then would be 3D printed. If you need something, it's you 3D print it. So Colors are kind of, things are basically plasticky, kind of 3D printed stuff. So the color palette was very muted. There wasn't a lot of really bright colors. Things were kind of, things that were real or, or earth tone were like sort of this reddish tone of the, the actual rock. So that place had its own, series had its own color palette that way. And then the spaceships were based on, you know, what would a, what would a, a freighter look like? In the future, well, it sounds like it had a lot of like. Was it carte blanche for production? Like all it was, it was carte blanche. I mean, it, in in a sense, yes. I mean, because there was no template. We're starting from scratch, so it was. And the books, the books don't have a ton of reference to color in them, as far as what things actually look like. They talk more about texture and atmosphere, but there's not there's not a lot of reference to actual color. So basically, Seth and I would just work together as what, and of course, wardrobe. Joanne Hansen was the wardrobe stylist. 
uh, costume designer. So Joanne and Joanne and, and Seth and I, you know, because obviously a lot of the wardrobe colors influence everything else. So color palette was varied from place to place. Like Earth had its own thing because there's there's colors of Earth. The 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 freighter, the Canterbury, had its own color palette because they all had their own uniforms. They're kind of dirty, greasy. Series the asteroid planet was more kind of earthy. There was a little more, almost like, sixties, like hippie colors in a way. It was a little more bohemian kind of color palette. And then lighting wise, we just sort of complemented those with what lighting complemented those colors. You know, so and because it was RGB, LED colored a lot of the time, mm-hmm. we didn't have to pick gels in advance in a lot of cases. So we could kind of mix it on the day. But what that meant is that because because the LEDs are very saturated for the most part, color wise. We often found that we'd end up desaturating a little bit because if we didn't, the colors were really strong from the LEDs. So mm. it worked anyways because we knew we were going to have a bit of a desaturated color palette. So because the LEDs were so colorful, by pulling back the color anyways, which we knew we were going to do, mm-hmm. we'd still had color without mm-hmm. making it kind of like muted too much. Did you have any budgetary concerns? It sounds like you didn't. Like they were cool with like we did. We, and sure. I mean, there, I guess there was sort of whatever we needed to get to make it work there was a way to kind of find a way to make it work. But we, there was a, you know, when we first submitted our list of what we needed, we were kind of just guessing because we had to kind of come up with a package that we think would work for the whole season, but we only really know about the first two episodes. Mm-hmm. And there's so many sets to come. So we, we generated this list and, you know, the quotes were kind of too high and there was a little bit of like, well, this is way too much from the, from the production side. So we, we tailored it back to make it work. So th- we did have resources in that sense but you, there was a certain awareness of like we don't have endless money you know because yeah. even with the money we had that there's we're, we're it's tight you know the, it's so ambitious and the, everything's so big that this the cost of building the sets and the vfx work like there there is a constraint to what we have from a lighting and camera standpoint so we were i mean i was trying to be as as conservative as i could while still not kind of cutting ourselves short you know get the job done yeah yeah and were special effects like a part of the daily production for you I mean in terms of visual effects wise yeah exactly well yeah I mean we had uh, Bob Monroe was our visual effects supervisor and and him and his team were there was always someone there every day because there was always a visual effects shot at some point every day we had tons of blue screen stuff we had a whole stage that was like 150 blue feet of blue screen wraparound that we used quite a bit and a lot of our sets always had a blue screen element to extend the set so there was always an element of needing to know what is out that window or what is what's over there. The weird thing about our world too is that in their, in their uh, vision of the future from a efficiency and practical standpoint, spaceships don't have windows. So you, you never, they have view screens. It's all through cameras. You have a camera because from a practical standpoint, it's far riskier to have a window into space than it is to have just a little camera and a, and a monitor. It's way safer that way. So they, we never, from that standpoint, you never had sunlight coming in. There was never sun because it's, you're always in this enclosed submarine that had no windows basically so um they saw outside through monitors it's through monitors so that was kind of a that was kind of a weird thing you have to get your head around that there was never really any sunlight in fact on series the all the kind of streets that they built or they put up this sort of um like almost like a las vegas painted blue sky ceiling to give you the sense that you're inside and they just would bounce light off it so you get a sense of daylight and we see that occasionally so that was sort of one of our influences. Like, okay, well, there's there's this kind of old, faded, painted blue sky mm-hmm. ceiling. So we'll, the light kind of has a bit of a weird bluish tinge when you're in that world because it's it's just mm-hmm. all the light bouncing off this this painted ceiling. Right. So you never had to 
light for sunlight essentially. Almost never. There's only a few times when there there was a couple times where there was like a hole. They would go into like a an abandoned ship that was like floating in space that had been breached. There's a hole in the side of it, and it's it's a vacuum inside, and the sun is coming in. But there were very few times that would happen. But when we did, like we knew also because they had written about how because of, when you're out by Jupiter, the sun is very weak. So even when you get direct sun, it's weak. So then we held this discussion of like, well, how bright is the sun? Because when we do see it, how much, how bright is it? So we started looking online and we found notes that, um, I think what it said was if you were on Jupiter looking at the sun, that it would be the equivalent of the, the sun just before it goes over the horizon on Earth at sunset. That's how bright the sun is at full noon on Jupiter. So we use that as a kind of a reference point of like, it's pretty weak. And we had a few shots of, you know, our, our characters out in space fixing the outside of a ship where they're actually in space. So it's kind of like this dark sun effect, so, which makes it more eerie, really. It's not this bright kind of, you know, you think of gravity, because we reference gravity a lot, and you think of that's the sun, you know, in our atmosphere, which is super bright, and gravity has that really blinding sun thing. Whereas our sun was a lot weaker because we're yeah. much further away and was it harder for you to to light that way you, mean, you know what sun looks like it's hard yeah it's harder because it's you, you always think of like well it's it's you're in space it's, the sun is bright yeah but it's not you're so far away the sun is weak yeah yeah so was that an adjustment it was an adjustment because okay. it's like well it's kind of in a way it almost looks kind of like night yeah but it's yeah. day but, but it's daytime see yeah yeah you have to be able to see you know so and there are a few instances of that where it's you're in places where it's pitch black you know that you're in a ship where the power's off and okay, so how did you see in Well, they had they all had, all the actors' helmets had work lights oh, built into them. Okay. So we built in work lights into their helmets. And, of course, the inside of their helmets were lit, which was all LED, uh, DMX, wireless. So we could control the brightness of their faces remotely. But we were relying on their helmets to light the set because, in reality, yeah. that's what it should look like. We can't have pools of light coming in. There's no windows to space. There's no sun coming in. Mm-hmm. So you have to have light somehow because the audience needs to see something. But we would rely a lot on their on their helmet lights. Did you change your ISO at all, or we kept it the same? Kept and in that case, we'd shoot wide open and just use the, the, the you know they were pretty punchy headlights, yeah. and we yeah. would just use those to kind of create the ambience, you know. And we put in a little bit here and there just to kind of so the walls in the back weren't disappearing. Yeah. But I mean, I was trying to make it as real as it could be, which meant that you don't see a lot, mm-hmm. you know. It's it's dark. It's they're in space. They're inside a ship that has no windows. The lights, the power's off. What was your shooting schedule? Um, we would shoot, um, we pretty much stuck to 12 hour days. So we did, uh, I believe it was about, um, see, we would do two episode blocks. So each episode, those blocks were about two weeks, a little over two weeks. So we would do usually very rarely we go over 12 hours. They, they were trying to keep the overtime to a minimum. So we, we do like 12, 13 hours sometimes. Some days were more complicated, but that was pretty typical. We do like a 12 hour day. So what was the biggest challenge of shooting this show? I guess the biggest challenge was, was trying to stay ahead of the sets that were coming. Because once we started shooting, I mean, I had this eight weeks of prep, which was great. But because I was the only one shooting it, once we were shooting, they're still designing sets for other episodes because there was always some new place to be. So I would try and either on lunch or at night or emails or on the weekend, I would try and meet with Seth and figure out in advance what's going to happen with the sets coming up because I they're building the sets like we'd be in one stage and they're in the next stage building everything and I'd have to make sure that they don't build the sets in a way that we can't get the lights where we need them because once the set once that space is built they have to start cutting holes and things to put lights in there so that was the main challenge was always trying to stay ahead of yeah. of the set building because it was so relentless like they're constantly building stuff that 
there was never a break. As soon as we were done, one thing, okay, then there's the next thing, and then there's the next thing, and then there's the next thing. I can imagine then your, your crew's still, you know, your gaffer and gripper trying to leapfrog as well. just to And they have their rigging crews that are working, and they need to know what's happening. So I have to have enough head, you know, notice to tell them in advance, okay, this is what needs to be done, because they're, they're working ahead of us. So you've got this team of people, you know, waiting for your input. Mm-hmm. So you have to be informed enough always to know what to tell them so that you're making the right decisions. They anticipated a lot of stuff, so they would say, well, we think you might need this, so do you want us to do this? We think, given what we've seen of what they're building, because they once we got into the flow of it, they kind of knew where we probably would put lights and how the, the flow of it would work, so they would, they would just kind of see what construction was doing, and they would come and say, hey, you know, they're, they're doing this. Because oftentimes the speed of what was being built was so quick that there wasn't always a direct link of what the designers were drawing and what the construction was building, because sometimes the constructors would have to start building before they even had the finished drawings because they knew, okay, it's going to be this. We're going to start putting down the, the, the footprint. Well, the details will come. But So my guys would often be saying, well, this is, we're seeing this happening. Do you, are you going to want to put a grid here? You're going to need blue screen here because they'd have to start building that in advance and they'd often have to anticipate because if they waited to the last second when, okay, now we know we need it, they wouldn't have time. So they, you know, they were great in that sense that that helps a lot with me not having to think about every tiny little detail. And I could kind of worry about the finishing touches and the, you know, where the most important bits needed to go. So that was really, if I didn't have those guys and if I didn't have the ability to meet with Seth on the weekends and have just even just a couple hours, because they would try and schedule lunch meetings, but how much time can you really talk about like a whole bunch of sets in like half an hour? So I would say, you know what, I'd rather not do the lunch meeting. I'd rather just on my own time, I'll come in on the weekend and I'll spend two or three hours with Seth, just the two of us, no interruptions and focus. And that was the only way really. And then what was the most memorable moment on the shoot, either because it was logistically challenging or fun or something that surprised you? I would say, I would say probably as we got closer to the end, you know, once, once we were really in the groove and we, we, we had the whole kind of machine dialed in, the stuff we did in the last like two or three episodes was even, I would say even the last episode where we were basically getting to the end of the story. So was it a limited episodic? Like, is it just one season? And then that's a story, or are they, is it going to It go? continues. I mean, because the books, the books are, are, there's four books, and the books all continue from one to the other. They, they're all continuous. So this season you shot is one book? It's two-thirds of the first book. So the next season will be the next book, book two. And then, you know, it'll continue from there. Anything nightmarish? Anything that was just like... Went horribly wrong. <laughs> you know, we, horribly right? There was never, never anything that went horribly wrong. I mean, thank, we, thankfully everything was... There was enough planning and, uh, you know, effort put in. There were a few times when something about the set, you know, a, a piece that had to work a certain way didn't work quite the way we thought it was going to work just because they didn't have time. Because these guys were working so hard to get the sets ready that we'd often show up and they were literally just like walking away doing the final touches, like, you know, because it was a new set. we walk in, okay, here's the new thing we're in now. It's a new space. And the lighting has to be ready. And, okay, you got 20 minutes to be, here's the blocking. Then you got like 20 minutes, half an hour, or maybe 40 minutes to be ready to start shooting. And it usually always worked. I mean, it always would come together somehow. I mean, there, I don't know. I mean, every day we did something interesting. There was every day we would do something different and cool that, that made it, you know, made it worth it. You know, I think the best part was just being able to have everybody sitting together at the monitors and we could, we could all look at it and everyone was excited about what we were doing every day. That was really the best part of it. And having the guys who wrote the books there, like Ty and Daniel were there. Ty was there for the most part, but he pretty much sat next to me almost the whole time in my tent. Oh yeah, did he give you input and stuff? He would, and I mean, because he, you know, he he wrote the book. He wasn't writing it thinking, imagining it visually in the same way that we were. Like he wasn't really thinking of 
the textures and tones that we were doing. So when he was seeing it as we were doing it, it was kind of like we were bringing to life what he was writing. And he would often say, like, well, that's not how he pictured it, but it's so cool. You know, but it was nice to be able to turn to him and say, well, what would, when this happens, when these engines turn on, what happens? How, how strong is the jolt? How much does the ship shake? Having him there was a great resource to answer those questions. Oh, yeah. You know, that was, that was very cool. Very and, cool. And, of course, the, the books have, massive, have a massive fan base. You know, so our main concern was making sure that, that we do the books justice because these, you know, these sci-fi fans know their genre and they're really hardcore about it. And if you get it wrong, they're going to nail you for it. So you know, having those guys there to kind of make sure that we're doing it justice and making sure that if we weren't sure, we could ask them. It's kind of a blessing. Like, you know, the, the, the fans will see that, you know. And the fans know that these, these guys have been very active on their blogs talking about the show. So the fans know that they're involved with it. So hopefully, you know, because they, they did have to make some changes because the books don't, can't translate exactly to the show. Mm -hmm. They had to do some jigging yeah. around of like moving characters from this mm -hmm. story to this story. And, but I think there was a lot of guys on the crew who read the books who were huge fans. Yeah. So they, they had read the books and now we're reading the scripts and they, pretty much everyone understood when there was a change made to something that had to be adapted, everyone was like, you know what, that makes sense, I get it. That was a good call to change this. So hopefully that represents what the book fans will think, you know, they'll think the same thing. This has been the Canadian Society of Cinematographers podcast. The CSC is a non-profit organization that has been promoting the art and craft of cinematography in Canada since 1957. Find out more by logging on to the CSC.ca. Thank you for joining us.